Welcome to Chit Chatter with Rhea, the podcast that provides information to you about the legal and political process. Now here's your host, Rhea Chattergoon. Welcome back, guys. On today's episode, I want to chit chat about a very controversial topic, which is women's health care, aka abortion. I don't like the term abortion. I think the term abortion elicits a visceral reaction and usually a negative one. Um, when used. I think it's being used as a political tool and has been for the past 50 years to garner votes um, on one side or the other. And I hate that as being used in, in terms of determining what women can and can't do with their own bodies. Um, women are just being treated as second-class citizens. And look, I have a lot of strong feelings about the issue. I know a lot of people do. Today's episode is a little lengthy. I want to first talk about the history uh, of the case law involving uh, abortion and and women's health care. And then I want to introduce you to a wonderful, wonderful woman named Danielle Talifis, who I became aware of this past summer uh, after she made the decision to terminate her pregnancy once she found out that her son had a condition called hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which is HLHS. Uh, It's the same condition that my daughter had and eventually passed away from at seven weeks. Danielle made a very different decision than I did. And I wanted to interview her. She did an article, um, an interview and an article for the Miami Herald. That's how I became aware of her. And I reached out to her wanting to talk about her decision versus mine because there are two sides to every decision. And I think a lot of people, you know, either based on their religion or their lived experiences, have very strong feelings about the issue, but you really don't understand until you hear another viewpoint or you see it through the lens of another person. So I'll try to keep today's episode a little, (laughs) as short as I can, what I'll do is I'll put timestamps in the notes in case you just want to jump to to whichever portion, um, whether it be the history or the interview. Um, let's talk a little bit about Roe versus Wade, right? That's the seminal case that everyone knows about. And there is this belief that Roe versus Wade somehow, quote unquote, legalized abortion. But that isn't actually true. What Roe versus Wade Wade did was change the way states could regulate abortion, right? And it it characterized abortion or women's health care as something that was covered under the constitutional rights of privacy. So Roe, the history of Roe, in 1970, there was this um, young woman, her name was, her fictional name, Jane Roe, was used in, in the court documents to protect her identity filed a lawsuit against Henry Wade, who was the district attorney of Dallas County, Texas, where she lived. And she was challenging a Texas law making abortion illegal except by a woman's doctors to save a woman's life. In her lawsuit, she alleged that the state laws of Texas at the time was unconstitutional because it was vague and it abridged her right of personal privacy protected by the 1st, 4th, 5th, 9th, and 14th Amendments. What was interesting, two interesting facts about about that case. Um, One, a Texas doctor joined the lawsuit. He argued that the state's abortion laws were even too vague for doctors to follow and because he had been previously arrested for violating the law. And the two lawyers who who brought the case um, were only 26 and 27 years old. And I, I always find that fascinating because at 26 and 27, I don't know that I would have had the wherewithal to to take on a case of that magnitude. Another interesting fact about Roe versus Wade is that there was a 77 to 2 majority of the Supreme Court that ruled in favor of Jane Roe. That court was all men. So this case, um, there, the decision came down in 1973. There were no female justices on the United Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court at the time. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the first female Supreme Court justice, didn't get onto the court until 1981. And even 
Justice O'Connor, who you know I I have a lot of respect for, she did put forth a lot of conservative opinions. Um, you know, my personal hero, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, didn't get onto the court until 1993, and she was a lawyer who pursued women's rights and 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 pursued you know gender discrimination giving us a lot of our our rights uh, today but in 1973 you've got to remember that women couldn't take out loans on their own they couldn't have a credit card in their name they had to have either their father or their husbands on there i mean these are the types of things that were happening at the time so to have a seven to two majority of a court say, well, wait a minute, there is a right of privacy in this decision was huge. Now that decision has been challenged over and over since 1973. Um, you know, that decision decided or ruled two, two very important things. One, the United States Constitution provides a fundamental right to privacy that protects a woman's right to choose whether to have a, an abortion. But it also said that right is not absolute and it has to be balanced against the government's interest in protecting the health and prenatal life. I could talk for hours about why I disagree with that. Following Roe versus Wade in 1992, the Supreme Court visited um, Roe vs. revisited Roe versus Wade uh, when it reviewed Planned Parenthood versus Casey. In that case, the court again upheld a pregnant person's right to choose an abortion through the right of privacy. I want to make that clear because I'll discuss it a little later on. But it changed the framework of Roe. So now instead of requiring states to regulate abortion based on trimester, the court created a standard based on fetal viability. And so fetal viability is the fetus's ability to survive outside the womb. Viability is usually placed around seven months, 28 weeks, but could be early as 24 weeks. As a result of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, many states reviewed their laws and changed their abortion laws to include up to 24 weeks. In fact, Florida is one of them. There had been there have been a number of cases challenging Roe and challenging Planned Parenthood um, or Casey as some some people call it throughout the years. I mean, we the Supreme Court has revisited this issue, you know, again and again in 2016. Um, you know, several states have challenged it. Most recently, we all know about the Dobbs versus Jackson's, Jackson Women's Health Organization, and that's the case that came down this summer, um, which essentially overturned Roe versus Wade. And it did so by declaring that the constitutional right to abortion, which had been upheld for the past 50 or so years, based on the right to privacy, no longer exists. Justice Alito, in a 78-page opinion. And that 78-page opinion, by the way, I've read it, the entire thing. It has a 30-page appendix in which this man, or the court, I should say, has used authority. I mean, he, he cited every single case he could for support of his position, including a 17th century opinion by a jurist who applauded a man's white, a right to abuse his wife, um, okayed marital rape, um, okayed, you know, the burning of women. I mean, this is how far back he reached in, in coming to his opinion. And, and specifically, he said that, you know, there's no evidence that the reliance on the court's abortion precedents over the past century should matter, that there is no inherent right to privacy or personal autonomy in various provisions of the Constitution. So in the, the you know, one of the biggest um, takeaways from that opinion was Clarence Thomas, who I call Uncle Ruckus. Um, if you don't know the, <laughs> the reference to that name, I suggest you Google it. It's one of my favorite cartoons of all times, um, the Boondocks. 
But Uncle Ruckus said that the legal rationale for the decision could be applied to other major cases. I mean, the court has signaled that it's going after gay marriage. It's going after, um, you know, just the, the fundamental rights of privacy for married people to have access to, to contraception or homosexual conduct. I mean, he went into detail of how this specific case, Dobbs versus Jackson, is going to be used in the future. He, he didn't address interracial marriage, um, which he is is currently involved in with, with uh, well, we won't get into that. I, I could talk about that for hours. Um, but this Dobbs case is very, very dangerous precedent. One, the court has essentially overturned longstanding precedent in this country which means it's going to be used as a tool for the various states to now overturn their precedent that exists in their state. So in Florida, we had a bill introduced that violates, in my opinion, the Floridians' constitutional right to privacy because we actually do have a right to privacy in the Florida Constitution. Um, and the, the bill essentially limited a woman's right to an abortion to 15 weeks. It was very controversial. Um, it's going to be decided upon by the Supreme Court. It's been appealed. But what we know is that this 15-week ban is not rooted in science. There is literally no doctor who can come out and say that 15 weeks is the threshold for deciding when to, you know, when decisions can be made. I've talked about this a lot in my on my private um, Instagram, but you know when you are pregnant, you go for various checkups, various ultrasounds. But your 20-week gestational ultrasound is usually where you find out if there's some abnormality with the the baby or the fetus. It's where you find out you know whether it's even viable, a viable pregnancy. And so for me personally, that's when my family found out that my daughter had hyperplastic left heart syndrome. We were given options on, you know, either terminating and then we, we met with, with various doctors and decided against that. We decided to try and I talk a little bit about that in the interview with Danielle and she does as well. But this 15 week ban makes absolutely no sense. And they are doing it in, in a attempt an attempt to sort of quell the complete ban. Although I will tell you now that Roe has been overturned, many governors have stated that they are going to essentially seek a, a complete ban. In Florida, Marco Rubio, Senator Marco Rubio has signed on to Lindsey Graham's federal ban of an abortion, which is mind-blowing because these are the same people who claim leave it to the states to decide, are now proposing a federal ban. And and Marco Rubio has been very clear about this. He is a staunch, what he calls pro-life, yet he doesn't vote on other issues that involving pro-life, but I can't get into that. Um, but but that's what we're, we're, we're voting on in this election. And again, I hate that it's being used as a political tool. I hate that they make this one of the main issues because a lot of people are, are one issue voters. And this one, like I said, creates such a visceral reaction that you do have a, a lot of people who are ingrained in their religion one way or the other and will vote for a party just based on the abortion issue. So. You know, listen, like I said, I, I could talk to you for days about this. One of the controversial issues is where there's a complete ban with no restrictions, you know, no restrictions or no exceptions, I should say, for rape or incest. And in my opinion, I think even those exceptions are infringing on my right to privacy. You know, because I shouldn't have to be raped or the victim of incest in order to make a decision on what I want for my body. I mean, if you're a woman 
you have either had the experience or know someone who took precautions, was on birth control, used a condom and it broke and, and, you know, had an unexpected pregnancy. For me, I think at that point, it's the woman's decision on whether she wants to move forward with that pregnancy or not. I think there's a misconception that there are so many late-term abortions. The statistics actually don't show that. And and it actually shows that late-term or, or what they're calling late-term abortion, you know, at, at 20 weeks on, those are usually for health reasons. It's usually because a fetus is not viable or not expected to live outside the womb. And I will tell you that is the most difficult decision. And I can tell you that because I've had to make that decision. It is the most heart-wrenching decision any woman can make. No woman makes that decision lightly. None. I don't care what these male politicians are out there saying about late-term abortions. It just doesn't happen. And we've got to change the narrative on that. Um, you know, this, 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 I think Secretary Pete Buttigieg said it clearly. At about 20, 24 weeks, even 28 weeks, no woman is thinking, oh, I don't want to go through with this anymore. I'm just going to have an abortion. At that point, a name has been picked. Nurseries have been planned. Baby showers are happening. You know, there's an excitement because you can see the facial features in an ultrasound if you're if you're able to get a 3D or 4D, I think there's 4D now, um, ultrasound. Um, you know, for me, at 20 weeks, when I went in for my 20-week ultrasound, my daughter started kicking the day before. I felt it for the first time. So no woman makes that decision lightly. And I think this narrative of the very, very small percentage of what they're characterizing as late-term abortion that's happening, I think we really need to look into the reason why that's happening because it's not, it's not what's being put out there. Um, you know, I posted today on, on my Facebook, a quote, uh, by Susan B. Anthony, which, <laughs> you know, I have my own issues with her because she forgot all women of color when, when in, in the 1920s, um, But she did say, no self-respecting woman should wish or work for the success of a party that ignores her sex. I take real issues with women who vote against their interests in any form, but specifically when it comes to their decisions on health care. And I think it's something that we have the power to change. You know, at least 50 plus percent of the population are women. We're seeing more and more women run for office um, and holding political offices. And I applaud these women because that is how you change it. But I'll end this as I usually do, which is please go vote. I hope you enjoy the interview with Danielle that's following uh, my commentary. Danielle, this is being launched on October 31st. And and that was initially the date I selected to launch this. And in speaking with Danielle, She told me that it was actually the due date for her son, Nathaniel. So we dedicate this episode to Nathaniel and to Danielle. Hello, Danielle. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me on the subject of HLHS, which is hyperplastic left heart syndrome. It's something that you and I are unfortunately very familiar with, and, and we're now part of this unwanted club that of, of mothers who've had to make decisions because of this awful disease. Um, why don't you tell, tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Okay, so my name is Danielle Talifus, and I live in Orlando, Florida. Uh, my husband and I have been married for six years, and we have... Um, One son prior to our HLHS pregnancy, his name is Benjamin. Um, He came to us through adoption. And then we had our HLHS pregnancy, which is Nathaniel. And then subsequent to that, we have had uh, a healthy pregnancy. And my little boy is now 16 months and that's Alexander. 
Oh, congratulations. Congratulations. I didn't realize your 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 eldest son was adopted. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, he's yeah, my that, sweetie. That that is something I have been advocating for in my family. Um, hopefully, my husband hears this and he <laughs> he 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 will give it some thought. Um, but like yourself, uh, my first pregnancy um, with my daughter Karis was she was my HL HLHS baby, and uh, and then we went on to have my son Liam two years later. He's about six years old now, so. Um, I, I could talk about him all day, but um, tell me when you found out that you were pregnant with Nathaniel, obviously it was a joyous time in your life. Um, you know, I'm sure you and your family were excited about the pregnancy. When did you actually find out about his HLHS diagnosis? Okay, so um, finding out about his, his pregnancy um, so like I said, our, our first son is adopted. Like I always tell people, my husband and I were like overthinkers and over planners. If you would have left it up to us, we never would have had kids. We always agreed we'd have zero or two, but nothing ever kickstarted us into having kids. It was always not the right time or financials weren't situated. So like I said, if you had left it up to us, it never would have happened. But um, a family member approached us with an unexpected pregnancy that they didn't feel like they were able to uh, take care of um, and asked my husband and I if we would be willing to adopt um, the baby. And, and we agreed. So um, my three-year-old, he's been with us since the day he was born. I got to be in the delivery room uh, when he came into this world and um, so from there, it was like, okay, well, we said we would have none or we would have two, and now we have one. So I guess we better work on number two. So when Ben was about six months old, we started making the steps to start trying for a pregnancy. And uh, much to our surprise, we got pregnant right away, basically the first month trying, mm -hmm. um, you know, because we were trying uh, I took a pregnancy test right away. So maybe at like just barely five weeks um, pregnant, I took a test and I knew we were pregnant. My husband, I think within the first five minutes of telling him that I was pregnant, had already messaged every single person in his family <laughs> to let them know um, because that's how excited we were. And, and right. we just, this was something that we wanted and this was something that we planned. So um the beginning part of the pregnancy was uneventful. We were using midwife care, um, had strong heartbeat on Doppler whenever they took a listen. So our first ultrasound was set for the 20 week anatomy scan, except it fell like a little past 20 weeks. I think we were like 20 weeks and six days. So really closer to 21 weeks. We had our anatomy scan. And the tech, she was telling us about herself and how long she's been doing this. She's been doing it for 20 years and she's pointing to everything on the screen that, you know, there's his nose, there's his lips, confirmed it was a boy, which we had known from the NAPT mm -hmm. blood uh, testing previously. Um, and she just kept using all these words that were perfect, right. perfect beautiful, perfect, amazing. Um, I actually have it on video because she allowed my husband to like video the screen um, as doing the ultrasound. So you can like hear just telling us how amazing our baby is. And um, kind of towards the end of the ultrasound, she's like, well, I'm not really getting good pictures of his heart. So let's, you know, turn this way on the table, see if we can reposition, turn that way maybe go use the restroom and empty your bladder since we've been doing this a long time, walk up and down the hallway, you know, a couple of different things, just to try to get baby in a more uh, compliant position. Right, right. Um, and uh, so at the end she was like, yeah, just not getting good pictures of his heart. So let's reschedule for another ultrasound in two weeks. Uh, so that was on a Friday. And then the following Tuesday, we got a phone call from the midwife that she said, uh, it's not that the tech wasn't getting good pictures of the baby's heart. Um, we actually think your baby has a condition called hypoplastic left heart syndrome and that the left side of his heart just 
is not there. It does not exist. So we're going to refer you to MFM. Uh, It took eight days before we were able to get into maternal fetal medicine. So as you could imagine, in those eight days, my husband and I read everything on the internet that there is about HLHS. You know, we, uh, I don't want to toot my own horn, but my husband and I are both educated people. So we understand the difference between reading, you know, Wikipedia versus a scholarly journal. Um, Plus, like I joined Facebook support groups for parents of HLHS children um, and started reading experiences, what people have gone through on the personal side of things, in addition to searching the medical side of things. How, how old were you when you first got pregnant with Nathaniel? I was 33. Okay. So you weren't, I mean, your midwives weren't requiring you to see a perinatologist because you were not of what they quote unquote say is advanced maternal age. I was not a geriatric pregnancy. Right, geriatric pregnancy. That's what they called it. So similarly, I I was actually a geriatric pregnancy. And so I actually saw a perinatologist and similar to you, my tech was, you know, kind of going along, except she um, stopped in the middle of the the exam and brought in the perinatologist to tell us what was going on. So we didn't have that wait, which gosh, I can't imagine having to wait eight days to to see. We left, we left the ultrasound appointment still really feeling positive that like nothing was wrong. You know, she was very comforting and in how she was telling us like, oh, you know, just not getting good pictures. So we'll try again, you know, in two weeks, we'll see if we can, we can get some better pictures. So getting that call the following Tuesday, like really blindsided me. I was actually at home alone with, um, my son, Mm -hmm. oh gosh, how old was he then? He had just turned one, I think. Oh, wow. I just turned one or was just about to turn one just about to turn one. So this happened like June 19th and his birthday wasn't until the 28th. So I was home alone with him and I was just like, I I can't be by myself right now. So I actually called my neighbor and I was like, can you come over please? (laughs) She's like, yes, of course. She didn't ask what was going on. She just knew I needed support in that moment. So, so that I wasn't by myself. It's funny how you remember the date, right? Um, So for me, it was June 23rd that we found out about my daughter and that date just sticks in your head um and so when you said june 19th i'm like yep that's what happens you ready for the eeriness tell me june 19th was the date of our ultrasound that was the friday june 23rd is when she calls you third was the tuesday when i got the phone call oh my gosh i'm gonna start crying we're on the same wavelength right now. Yep. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So tell me about when you met with your, with the um, maternal fetal, what is it? MH, I call it perinatologist. What did you call it? A maternal fetal medicine. So we always just refer to it as MFM. Okay. Um, so eight days later, it, this is the peak of COVID going on. Gosh. That's right. So my husband actually was not allowed to come into the MFM office with me. However, she did allow us to do like a video right. call um, so that he could essentially be in the room and hear things the way she said them, because that was really important to me. So just a little side track. My mom had previously gone through breast cancer treatment and my dad and I went to all of her appointments with her. And it shocked me how we could be sitting in the exact same appointment and start discussing what had happened. And we would have heard two completely different things. And you're like, were you in the same room as me? Like, it's true. It's true. I blanked out at my appointment. I cannot tell you to this day what my perinatologist said. So there was like no way I wanted to be the one that was referring or relaying information to my husband right so 
apparently he was on the phone. Um, they had a tech in the room who was doing another ultrasound as the MFM doctor was in there with me. So she was asking her, you know, the tech to show her certain things. And then as they're coming up on the screen, she's explaining them to us and what's going on. And uh, once she completed the ultrasound, um, she started talking to us about our options. And um, we were very much already familiar with them from the eight days of research in between it was you know we could go forward with the pregnancy and uh attempt and this point you're at 21 weeks right um so the i was at 22 weeks and three days because the anatomy scan happened yeah. at 20 weeks six days oh. yeah oh. so you know, she's explaining us our options, you know, first being to attempt medical intervention um, with all the surgeries that they've developed for kids with uh, HLHS. Um, we can do termination or there was compassionate care where we just deliver the baby and let them pass naturally since mm -hmm. HLHS, it's a condition that has no miracles. Like if you have it, you survive unless you have interventions right. um so given that we had already had a lot of discussions in those eight days leading up my husband and I had already kind of agreed that you know 98 percent sure that you know if this truly was our diagnosis that we would go forward with termination for just a multitude of reasons um but our doctor was like, okay, we can get you in with pediatric cardiology. Um, she was, uh, she's friends with pediatric cardiologists on that unit. So she was like personally texting him and was mm -hmm. like, I have a right now in my office. Is there any way she can come over to you? And he, he agreed. Um, so we had let her know chances where we were going to go with termination but we'd absolutely listen to what the car pediatric cardiologist had to say. Mm -hmm. um, just there was something in there that would change our minds, you know? Right, right. So she literally walked me out of her office, down the stairs, across the street, and into the office of the pediatric cardiologist and like hand delivered me to him. Mm -hmm. um, my husband was allowed to come in at that point because he was actually just sitting in the car in the right. parking garage. Um, so he was able to come in. And so from there, um, the pediatric cardiologist's team did their own ultrasound. They did a fetal echocardiogram so that they had all their own images, exactly how they want them. So we're talking like, I've been going at this for a couple hours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the pediatric cardiologist comes in with us and he starts having the conversation. He's like, I will sit here as long as I have to, to answer all of your questions. Right. Um, starts explaining the three surgical procedures that I know you're familiar with um, yeah. and we had already been familiar with them we knew their names at the time this is yeah. information I've blacked out at this point but like we knew the names of the procedures we knew the doctors that had created them and what they entailed and um, so he was very straightforward with us um, with all this information and um what really got me the most, which just drove home that my husband and I made the right decision for us was when we asked about pain management for the baby. Yeah. That doctor's eyes never faltered until I asked that question. It was the only time he looked away from me. And all he could say is, you know, they do their best to, to monitor baby's pain and make sure that they're, they're taken care of. But you're talking about, you know, opening up their rib cage and major open heart surgery when they're days old. And right. my husband and I are the kind of people that don't even want to take a Tylenol when we have a headache. Right. So just imagine putting that on our baby was, it wasn't something that we could, we could ask a baby right. to bear. We ourselves would never want to bear that. Right, right. And so at this time, uh, the law in Florida was 24 weeks um, uh, for, for termination. And I know just studying the history of, of the law, 
you know, it was put in place for situations like this because most women don't find out about these types of conditions until the 20 week ultrasound. Um, and, and in your case, close to 21 weeks, right? So by this time, I mean, you're, you're faced with almost a week and a half to make this life altering decision. Um, what was it like for you having to make it in such a short amount of time, um, you know, after speaking to the doctors and, and, and doing your own research? So that gets a little even worse part of the story. You would think I would have a week and a half because Florida's law at the time was 24 weeks. However, um, there were only two clinics in the state of Florida that are yep. able to the termination, both of which are in West Palm Beach. Yeah. And honestly, it's a question I never asked, but they have a restriction on the size of your baby's head for performing the procedure. So even if you're before 24 weeks, if your baby's head circumference exceeds a certain limit, they will not perform your procedure. Um, I, I don't know, know that. I don't know if it's that clinic specifically. I don't know if it's medical liability. I don't, I don't know that I ever knew that. Um, and, and my, my daughter was very small. She was always weighing, um, you know, under, she was always underweight. And honestly, I blinked out so much of that period. I don't know that anyone ever informed me of that. Yeah. So, um, while I was at the pediatric cardiologist, um, the MFM doctor was running down the information I would need if we went forward with termination. So this appointment was on a Wednesday leading into the 4th of July weekend. Right. The 4th of July was on the Saturday that year. So the clinics were going to observe uh, Friday as the day to be closed for the holiday. They were so concerned about the size of my baby's head that if we waited until the following Monday, I would no longer be eligible for a termination. So while I was in the pediatric cardiologist, MFM was on the phone with the clinic setting up arrangements that I would have to be there the next day. And a doctor, one of the doctors at the clinic agreed that as long as two nurses were also on board with him, they would come into the office on the Friday that they had intended to be closed so that they could do my procedure, just three staff in the office. So I literally had to be in West Palm Beach the very next day. Wow. You know, one thing I will say is what I noticed when I was going through my, um, decision-making with my daughter was just how amazing all of these medical professionals were. I think the people who work in the pediatric world are just freaking angels. They really are. They were, they were amazing taking care of us. I have not a single bad thing to say about anyone that was handling our care. What upsets me the most, and again, like one, your time restricted in these cases, and two, like you're so struck with grief, you're not even thinking straight. Right. So, what I didn't know at the time is that there are different ways you can have a termination. And the option, the only option that was presented to me was going to the clinic and having a DE. I have found out after the fact, now that I am a part of a community of women who have had to terminate wanted pregnancies, is that there is a labor and delivery option where they just induce you early. Mm -hmm. Um, But so at the clinic level, when they do your DNA, they do you under twilight sedation, you're not fully put under, whereas in a hospital setting, you are fully put under. And what upsets me to this day is that hospitals weren't an option for me. Whether I chose a DNE or whether I did choose labor and delivery, that was not presented to me because the hospital 
wouldn't perform that kind of procedure because my life wasn't in danger and the baby didn't have right. a fatal anomaly as far as they were concerned. It's as far just, as the hospital's concerned, right, right. It's Regardless the of the diagnosis. Yeah, it, it's the red tape. Whereas like I have a friend whose baby was diagnosed um, with uh, a brain condition and her life uh, quality was going to be practically none. Um, and she was able to advocate for having her termination in the hospital, like took her case to the ethics board and they approved it ultimately. But like you said, in that moment- Who has like, to deal with that when you're already dealing with this awful news of, of your child being you know, not viable? Like, it angers me. It angers me to no end, um, especially because I'm in the legal field. And so, you know, trying to, to advocate for people um, through red tape like this, it's just, it disgusts me. It really does. So I, I hold no ill will against the doctors and right. medical themselves. I know it's hospital policies that created this lack of options for me. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's something you remember because when I got pregnant with my son subsequent to this pregnancy, I opted to deliver at a birthing center. And my biggest fear was having to be transferred to a hospital because I didn't want to go to a hospital that was not willing to help me in my greatest time of need. Like, how could I trust them with my body? in another moment of great need. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about, and if you want to, if you don't want to, we can skip this portion. Um, the day of, the day of, what, what was your mental state? I mean, obviously I can imagine, but what were kind of the discussions you were having? Okay, so this is just where your brain kicks into survival mode. You know what you have to do and you're going to do it no matter what. And you just keep pushing forward and repress any desire to think about it, to cry about it, to, right. to mourn. So the next morning, um, we were scheduled. They said they needed us at the clinic uh, no later than 2 p.m., uh, at the same time, I had a, a dog who was going through cancer treatment. So I had had an appointment that Thursday morning at 10 a.m. for him to see an oncologist. And so I'm literally like still doing everything in my everyday life. I got up that morning. I called my boss and I said, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to be able to come to work the next two days. Like couldn't even explain myself at that point. Yeah. Fortunately, my job has that, that understanding and flexibility that life happens and they're not going to, you know, give me the third degree as to why I'm not coming in. Um, so I took my dog to the oncologist's office. Again, this is during COVID. So they took the dog inside. I'm sitting in my car. And while I'm sitting in my car, I'm texting everybody and making plans. So knowing that because of COVID, my husband wouldn't be allowed in the clinic with me. I was like, there's no point in you coming down with me. You need to stay here and stay with our son because I don't want to disrupt his routine and his life. My husband and I have put my son to bed together every night since the day he was born. This was the first time I was spending even a night away from him and I was devastated by it. So I was like, I need you to stay here. Yeah. Fortunately, my sister was in town for my son's first birthday party and she's a road tripper um and she was able to adjust her schedule because I was like Elena is there any way you can you know stay an extra day or two and ride with me to the clinic and she's like of course mm -hmm. so um on the way home from the oncology appointment with my dog I have my husband on the phone I'm telling him like grab my bag out of the top corner of the closet in this drawer, you'll find two pairs of yoga pants, throw them in, grab my hairbrush, throw it in, like just guiding him on what to put right. into a for me. Um, I ran through a drive through and picked up lunch for everybody. 
and came home and literally just grabbed my bag out of his hand, hopped in the car with my sister and left. And actually I found out after the fact in doing a lot of interviews with people um, about the abortion ban in Florida and how it impacted us or would have impacted us is my husband sincerely regrets that he didn't even have a moment to really say goodbye, you know? Right. So my sister and I, we got in the car and stopped the gas station and take off down the road for an almost three hour drive. And I called the clinic as we were starting to get close. And I was like, I'm going as fast as I can, but we're not going to make it by two o'clock. Just, you know, please know I'm coming. I'm on my way. Um, and they said, that's fine. So we pulled in at like two 15, my sister just waited in the car as I went inside the clinic. Um, cause a DNE is a two day procedure. Um, so we had to get started that day and, you know, they hand you a whole bunch of forms and you don't even, you're not even reading them. You, I, I couldn't tell you a single thing that they said. Um, you're just signing them saying like, yep, yep, yep we're going to go through with this. There is no turning back. Um, as hard as it is, this is the decision that we have to make. Right. Right. So they have to do another ultrasound while I'm there, which is probably the hardest part. Right. Because you're seeing the baby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then after that, they took me back to start the procedure. so you it was a two-day procedure so it's a two-day procedure the first day they um they stopped the baby's heart and then um they insert um what they call laminaria into your cervix and it starts to artificially dilate your cervix so that the following day they can perform the DNA. Yeah. What I don't think people realize is that the baby's heart is beating because the baby is inside of you attached to your umbilical cord. And so yeah. barring that, if the baby were to be born, if Nathaniel were to be born you know, early, my, my daughter came early at 34 weeks. Um, we actually had a, a whole team set. I think there was like 20 people in the, in my delivery room. Um, because the, the anticipation was that she, uh, her heart would not beat, um, coming out and they would have to intervene. Um, her heart was beating and she was breathing on her own. I mean, it was really a miracle at that point, but I, but the expectation was, and I think the medical opinion is that most babies with HLHS, their heart will, you will need some sort of intervention if they're born and the umbilical cord is cut. Um, and so, you know, it, it goes back to, you know, all of the debates on whether, you know, abortion is right or, or, or proper, or, you know, everyone has their opinions on it, but I think just the medical opinion on it, it, it just really differs, right. Um, than, than the religious one. Um, so two days and then you drive back home. Yep. What was the aftermath like for you? I mean, you're still experiencing the after aftermath, quote unquote, right? Yeah. So um, there's definitely, you know, the physical right. side of it, uh, experiencing discomfort just from the procedure itself and your body um, making sure that it expels everything that, you know, is no longer supposed to be inside of your uterus. Right. Um, you know, I still was visibly as if I were pregnant and had already started to feel him kicking and moving around. So knowing that feeling was gone, um, there was a lot to it. And I think my work every day for it, because when I told my manager that I was no longer pregnant, 
I came into work that Monday and he was like, what are you doing here? Right. And I was like, I don't know, you know, just got to keep moving. And he's like, go home. I'll see you in a week. Just go home. Yeah. Don't worry. And I was really thankful for that. Um, yeah. um, there's just so much to it because then afterwards. Having you know, to explain to everyone, you yeah. know, and, and people sort of feel entitled to an explanation, right? You're that far along in your pregnancy. And yeah, and, and I think it's out of genuine concern. Yeah. Um, but you know, people are curious and, and they ask a lot of questions. And I I can't imagine what that what that was like. You know, most people it's hard because you don't have the right words to say after it happened. Like you just don't outright tell people I had an abortion at 23 right. weeks. Um, you know, we said, you know, on Facebook, we had announced that we were pregnant. Right. Um, so everybody knew and everybody was participating in our joy. So it, it almost felt necessary to make another announcement that we were no longer pregnant and I think we just said like you came home in our hearts and not in our arms and people just you know assumed it was a miscarriage so right you get a lot of the toxic positivity of you know things happen for a reason oh God, and, God knows what he's doing oh yeah. I heard all of it yep and you just you just I just purse my lips and shake my head shake and your head and <laughs> I, I totally understand that. I totally understand that. Um, so I actually found you through your the article that was written in the Miami Herald. I actually posted it to uh, my social media and and talked a little bit about, you know, here's a woman who made a different decision than I did. Um, but I do still feel some camaraderie because one, it's the same condition, but two, I know I've told you this, I'm going to try not to get emotional on this. Um, to this day, I still wonder whether I made the right decision, you know, because as you talk about the pain management, I watched my daughter go through all that pain. And the question of, could I have made a better decision for her? Could I have avoided that, you know, that pain and, and I mean, just prodding and, and wires. And I mean, I still hear to this day, just the beeping from the NICU. Yeah. Um, you know, could I have avoided that? And I gotta tell you, if I were placed in the same position today, I probably would choose to terminate knowing what I know, you know? Not that one decision is better than the other, but just knowing what I know, it, it, was, it, it was difficult. And, and I don't know about you, but when I got pregnant with my son, you know, that was almost two years later, it was such a mental stress for that first 20 weeks before that ultrasound. We didn't tell anybody we were pregnant outside of our immediate family. I didn't take maternity photos with him. I regret that to this day. We didn't take any maternity photos. I have very, very few pictures of me pregnant with him because I had so much with my daughter um, that I was scared. I was scared of what could be, um, you know, but I had great, great doctors that I mean, my, my pediatric cardiologist came in herself the day he was born to do the echocardiogram on him because I insisted that he had one. And I fought with my insurance to, to pay for it um, because they weren't gonna pay for it. Um, but she came in and I don't know how she coded it. And she's just, you know, she, she really took care of us, but she came in and did it herself because she, she understood, she understood that. Did you do any of that with your son? Um, so, with my second pregnancy with Alexander, um, we did see the same maternal fetal medicine doctor and we did more scans. So we did um, one at about 11 weeks and then we did an early scan at about 16 weeks and then the follow-up one at 20 weeks. And what 
what always strikes me with the 15 week abortion ban is that number 15 is based nowhere in science none so what i know from my maternal fetal medicine doctor with her degree her level of knowledge her superiority of equipment she will only do an early anatomy scan at 16 weeks right 16 right so even if you somehow convinced every OBGYN on the planet to start doing anatomy scans at 16 weeks instead of 20, you've still already missed that 15 week cutoff. Right. It, it, it's not rooted in science. It, it really isn't rooted in science and it's, it's not rooted in the belief of the health of women. I, I, I am convinced about that. Um, why was it so important for you to, to talk about your experience? I mean, I know you, you, you know, spoke with the Miami Herald um, and, and that article came out. Why was that important to you? So I was one of those people that always said, um, I support a woman's right to choose, but I would probably never have an abortion. Right. If I got pregnant unexpectedly. If I got pregnant at 16, I wouldn't do an, I wouldn't have an abortion. If Same. I got pregnant unexpectedly and got pregnant at 40, I wouldn't have an abortion, right. but I still want every woman to have the right to choose for themselves. Right. And then this whole situation just smacked me in the face. And it's like, no one out there knows the decision that every woman has to go through when they're pregnant. You don't know. And therefore you should never have a say in someone else's body autonomy. And this is a soapbox I will stand on for the rest of my life because so many people say oh I didn't know or oh well it's not a when it comes to people like you that's not what we're talking about and I'm like no but you are but you are but you are right right this 15 week abortion ban very specifically targets families exactly like mine right right I think I think the the thought is that and it's such an erroneous thought, right? That that women just use abortion as birth control. Um, yeah. And I don't think there is a consideration for women like myself and yourself who, you know, are are planning these pregnancies and want the baby, um, and 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 you know, having to make the worst decision of your entire life um, and live with that decision, you know, regardless of what the decision is for the rest of your life. Uh, and the mental toll that takes. And so what do you think, and I think you've already sort of answered this, but what do you hope people, both men and women, get out of your story? I just really want the collective community to understand that there are so many nuances that go into making these decisions. There are so many conditions that you've never even heard of. Right. So when lawmakers try to start writing bills that somehow are gonna outline everything that's right and everything that's wrong with abortion, it's impossible. It is absolutely impossible. No no politician, even no medical professional can write down on a piece of paper in which cases is an abortion good and in which cases is an abortion bad. So if you can't define that, then you need to leave it open to everyone. Well said, well said. Well, Danielle, I cannot thank you enough for doing this interview. I know how emotional this is. I know how, you know, reliving this story is. Um, I, like yourself, I'm a big sharer. I believe in, in talking about our stories to, to inform people. Um, and so I, I really, I'm honored to have met you. I am honored that you are doing this interview um, for my podcast. And I just wish you and your family just the best in, in, in life. And uh, I thank you again.
Thank you, Rhea. Can I just leave with one closing? Comment? Absolutely. Go for it. I just want you to know we are never here to compare traumas. You experienced a trauma okay. just I experienced a trauma and no trauma is better or worse than the other. You made the right decision for your family, for your daughter in that moment with the information that you had at the time. You can never regret that. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend. You can also follow the podcast on our social media pages.